This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. With me this morning to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord said, Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But as for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now today is Mother's Day, and I want to speak to you today about women. And I know that many of you are mothers, but I want to more generalize it and speak today and honor you as women. As women, you're a marvelous creation of God. And he has given you and endowed you with unique incredible abilities, both spiritually, physically, emotionally, and intellectually. And all the women said, Amen. Amen. And God has made you beautiful in shape and in form that is highly attractive, attractive and desirable to men. And all the men said, Amen. <laughs> Man, that was a good response. You would have been in serious trouble if you had not responded to that. And so God has given you intelligence and charm, great emotional strength, and an innate intuition. You women have got this ability to be sensitive much, much more than men. You are acutely sensitive and intuitive. You pick up on things a lot quicker than us men do. It goes right over our head, but you pick up on it quickly. Women have made an incredible contribution to the kingdom of God for thousands of years, and the church in particular would be greatly, greatly diminished and depleted if it hasn't been for women. 
Look around you. If you took the woman out of this church, it would make such a difference, wouldn't it? And that's the same for every church because woman has made a tremendous contribution. So therefore, it's not surprising that the Bible has much to say about woman. So in spite of all the rantings and ravings of strident feminists, in spite of all of that and secular authors who try to tell us that Christianity has taken woman back centuries, it's just not true. In fact, if you read the Bible that was set in the midst of a pagan culture, where women by and large were just chattels of their husbands or their fathers, uh, just commodities that could be used and disposed of at whim or at will, Whereas the Bible, particularly, if you read through it, you'll see that God honored woman. He lifted woman up to a higher plane. If we look at the modern backdrop today, where women are sexualized and abused and are told such things as don't listen to Christianity and to religion because they want to put you back in the dark ages and now you have freedom and you have liberty and so don't get caught up in that kind of man-made, man-dominated religion, particularly Christianity. And it's not true. Christianity has lifted woman up. Christianity has blessed woman in general around the world. There are religions that do put women down, but not Christianity. Jesus, when you read the New Testament, you'll see how he treated so tenderly and lovingly and compassionately woman. Well, God delights in using your great gifts and abilities that you possess for his glory and for the good of mankind. And whenever you read through the Bible, you will see some great woman, woman of worth, woman that are noble, woman that are honorable, strong woman, woman that's able to lead, to bear responsibility, that had great wisdom, that had tremendous faith, and were greatly faithful. And so when you read through their stories, it inspires you, it encourages you. I think of women who changed nations. Think of Esther, who was married to that pagan king, and how that terrible plot was formed to destroy all of her race. And yet she took courage in hand, and with the help of God, she saved her whole nation one woman saved her whole nation. Think of Deborah, the judge in the Old Testament, the only woman judge in the Old Testament, and she was a prophetess as well. And how she went out and fought and battled and won a great victory. You think of Lydia, that businesswoman, that seller of purple. Or Anna, the old prophetess in the, in the temple who prayed 
uh, until she was way into her 80s, day and night in the house of God. She prayed until she saw the Christ child. You think of Ruth, the faithful Moabiter, the beautiful Rachel, the wife of Jacob, or, or and the wife of uh, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. And, and then there was Abigail. Uh, and what a woman Abigail was. Not only was she beautiful, but she was clever. She was savvy. And she was married to a brute of a husband. Excuse my language, but that's the only way I can put it. Nabal, the fool. And how that David had come to kill him because of how he treated his men. And if it hadn't been for Abigail, David would have had a very dark stain and blot on his character. But she was a beautiful woman, and she was a humble woman, but she was a clever woman. And how that she saved David from that. And so there are many powerful and humble and gracious and clever wise women throughout Scripture. But today, because it's Mother's Day, I want to remind you and to share about Eve. And Eve, according to Genesis 3.20, Adam called her Eve, which means life or life giver or living. She was the mother of all living. We would not be here today if it hadn't been for Eve, the mother of all living. Now, you remember that God made man from the dust of the earth. He breathed into him, and man became a living soul. And God placed him in this beautiful garden called Eden, a veritable paradise. And everything God made, he declared to be good. But whenever he made man, he said it was very good. Adam was the pinnacle of his creation, but he wasn't finished when he created Adam because Eve had to come. But something was missing in Adam's life. Sure, God created all the animals and brought them before Adam and he named every one of them, but there was none that was comparable to him. There's none that could be his true living companion. Now, for those of you who have got pets, and Sally and I over the years have had our pets, and you get attached to your pets, and sometimes you talk to them as if they were human beings, don't you? You really do. But at the end of the day, they're animals. They're not human beings. They're not made of the stuff that we're made of. And so they all passed before Adam, but there was none of them that was comparable to him. There's none of them that have made a perfect companion for him. John Milton in the 17th century said that loneliness was the first thing God saw that he declared was not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And so what happened? God put Adam to sleep and took a rib from his side. And from that, he built and he fashioned woman, Eve. Do you realize today that hmm, the only creature that God ever made out of living tissue was woman? He made Adam from the dust of the earth. He made the animals from the dust of the earth. For when it came to Eve... He made her out of living tissue from the side of Adam. I like what John MacArthur said about this. He said, he made Adam from a handful of dust, but he made Eve from a handful of man. 
And ladies, that sets you apart. That makes you extra special. Can you say amen to that? Old Matthew Henry said, and I've used, every preacher uses this at a wedding. If a man was the head, she was the crown. A crown to her husband and the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust doubly refined, one removed further from the earth. He further states, the woman was made out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and close to his heart to be loved by him. Now, we can only imagine the, the beauty of Eve because now she is the pinnacle of God's creation, his final masterpiece. Her beauty was all-surpassing. She was without flaw or defect. No need for digital enhancement or photoshopping. <laughs> no need even of cosmetics. She was absolutely beautiful beyond compare. As soon as Adam saw her, he was absolutely smitten and taken by her beauty. Hmm. Now I said that we can only imagine what Eve looked like because interestingly, the Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, if you read through the Bible, you will see that the Bible only occasionally refers, when it's talking about women, only occasionally refers to their outer beauty and appearance. But more often than not, it refers to their inner beauty or character. Because God is much more interested in what you look on the inside than what you look on the outside. The word's the opposite. The word's all about image. Now, that's not to say, of course, that women should be dowdy or not dress well or look well. Not at all. But the world, that's all it wants you to see. Whereas God looks at the heart. And there was some beautiful woman in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that God more than often talks about their character, their inner beauty, rather than their physical appearance. Women today are under so much pressure to conform to stereotypes, particularly young girls. The pressure they come under from peers or from television or from magazines or from movies to appear a certain way, to have a certain image, to be cool is tremendous. But God wants us to see that there's something about the heart, about character. That's what he's looking for. And so as believers, we need to watch that we too don't become slavish to whatever trends are out there because they are constantly changing we all know that statement, oh, that was so last year. 
And it's, that's the fashion industry. And it pays them to do that. To try to mold you and shape you and make you feel if you haven't got this or look like that, you're so last year. But wait a minute, as believers, we should not live our lives by that dictate. As believers, we should be looking more for inner beauty. So Eve was the perfect companion for Adam, both spiritually and intellectually. She was absolutely on par with him. They were both, according to Genesis 1, both of them were to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, both of them together. So she was in no sense inferior to Adam. In no sense was she inferior to Adam, but she had a different role. And God made a clear distinction about these roles since the beginning of creation. She would never, ever be inferior, but she would be subordinate. Say, David, what do you mean? She would never, ever be inferior, but she would be subordinate because that's God's role. That's God's idea. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8 and 9 says, Man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Adam was the head, Eve was the helper. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, think of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Even though they are co-equal in essence. God the Son, in essence, is co-equal with God the Father. God the Holy Spirit, in essence, is co-equal with God the Son and God the Father. They're all co-equal. They're all equally God. There's none inferior to the other, but they have different roles. They have different roles. And Jesus, when he was on earth, he was always subordinate to the Father, not inferior to the Father, but subordinate to the Father. Are you listening? In fact, in Colossians 2 and 9, it says that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So no inferiority there. The same in essence in every single way, yet subordinate. John 5.30, he said, I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 8.29, I do always those things that please him. Over and over and over again, Jesus made it very clear when he was on earth that he was subordinate to the Father. The things I say, I hear the Father say. The things I do, that's what the Father wants done. Not my will, but your will be done, he prayed in Gethsemane's garden, didn't he? Paul further clarifies this in 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now that in no way lessens or diminishes a woman in spirituality or an intellect. In essence, she is not in any way inferior to man at all, but she's got a different role. 
a God-given, divinely appointed role as helper. Now, how many know today that we men function an awful lot better with the wisdom and the grace and the love and the giftedness of a godly woman? Well, only Gary said amen. (laughs) One man among us said amen, and his wife wasn't here to hear it. She'll have to get the, she'll have to get the recording of that and hold you to it. But isn't it true? It's absolutely true. And I can say amen to that. It's absolutely true. And so, woman has an entirely different role as a man. Now, the sad, tragic part about this is that very often this has been taken way out of context. The whole business of submission has been taken way out of context. And men, and some Christian men, has used it to beat women over the head with. I'm your husband. You must obey me. Well, if you were a good husband and a godly husband and a lovely husband, that wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't be a problem. But if you're a bully of a husband, or if you're not a garn of a husband, as we say in Northern Ireland, and you're all of those things, it's going to cause conflict, isn't it? Now, because of restrictions of time this morning, I can only briefly really touch on this, but it was a truly defining moment in the history of all mankind, and we have certainly lived with its terrible consequences ever since. We know that Genesis 2 ends with an absolutely picture-perfect scene of Adam and Eve living in harmony with one another, loving one another, in that beautiful environment where God would come and meet with them in the cool of the day. And so it's an idyllic scene, a beautiful relationship that's perfect in every single way until you come into chapter 3 when Satan comes, when the old devil comes in the form of a serpent. And he comes to rack that, to destroy it, And he's been destroying and racking marriages ever since. That's his business. And so, when you come into chapter 3, we find that God made just one prohibition. Just one single thing they were not to do. 99.9% absolute freedom Just one little thing. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just that one single thing. And of course, that's where Satan comes in. And what does he do? That's the very thing he goes for, isn't it? So let's just look quickly here at chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now technically, technically that is true. Because there was one tree that weren't allowed to eat. But he made a big, 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 big issue that on that. 
But whenever you read what God said, he says you can eat freely of all the trees of the garden, but there's just one. But the devil takes that one thing and he makes a big, massive issue out of it. And he likes to do that. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but a fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now let's just stop there for a second. God made Adam first. And God gave to Adam the instruction, the command, do not eat of that particular tree because in the day that you eat of that tree you shall surely die then after that he created Eve from the side of Adam and it doesn't tell us that God gave her that instruction so we can only assume then that it was Adam gave her the instruction but how well did he instruct her how important did he make that fact How much did he impress upon her? Do not eat that fruit of that tree. Because if you do, God said, we will surely die. At some point, the devil comes along in the form of the serpent. And she says to him, listen to it again. God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Well, God didn't say about anything about touching it. He just says, don't eat it. Lest you die, he says, you shall surely die. So she didn't fully grasp. Now that probably was Adam's fault. Adam should have been the head spiritually. God gave him the order. But did he relay that order correctly? Did he stress the importance of it? Did he make sure that she fully understood the ramifications of it? It doesn't seem so. Isn't it interesting that the devil got her while she was on her own? When Adam wasn't there, he singled her out. He waited for that moment when Adam wasn't about. Then he went to her because he knew that she was the weak spot because she wasn't fully aware and conscious and understood fully enough the ramifications of what she was about to do. This is why the Bible says she was deceived. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Ha. He's the father of lies, isn't he? A liar from the beginning. And there is just a big, fat, ball-faced lie. He's bold now. He knows that she's shaky. He knows that he can get her. So now he comes in with a big, bold lie. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is withholding from you He doesn't want you to know as much as he knows. You go ahead and do this, and when you do, you'll just be like your God. You'll know everything there is to know. 
In science today, the cry is, you don't need the Bible, you don't need God, you don't need Christianity, you don't need all those fairy stories because we know everything today and what we don't know, we soon will know. That's the cry today, isn't it? The insatiable desire for knowledge, the quest for knowledge in man is immense. And what they say about us, the Christians, is, listen, science has all the answers to this life, everything you need to know about life and death, where we came from, where we're going to, science can answer everything. And the bits that science can't answer, there's a gaps here and there that science hasn't quite figured out yet. That's where you Christians put God in, the God of the gaps, they call it. So you just put God in there when you can't explain anything, but we can explain it. And give us some time this year, next year, 10 years, 20 years, we'll be able to explain it. And that gap will be closed and your gaps are getting smaller and smaller. That's the argument today. The God of the gaps. And it's as old as the Garden of Eden. And you will be like God knowing good and evil. Well, they knew good all right, didn't they? Because that's all they ever had was good. Everything they had was good and very good. But now, what about knowing evil? Well, they hadn't known that. They hadn't experienced that, but they're about to. A man ever since has been experienced an evil in a practical way, in a personal way. We've all experienced it, haven't we? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, everything appealed to the flesh. Everything appealed to the flesh. So when she saw all of that, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave her husband with her and he it. Ah, hold on a minute. Eve was tricked. Eve was deceived. We'll see this in a moment. But Adam wasn't. Adam deliberately, consciously chose at that moment to sin against God to disobey, to rebel. He knew God had given him specifically and directly the commandment not to do this. So Adam is without any excuse whatsoever. He consciously, deliberately did this. 1 Timothy 2.14 says that Paul says Eve was deceived and she transgressed. But Adam wasn't deceived. He made a deliberate, conscious choice. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Interesting, that never bothered them before but it bothers them now. And there's something about 
nakedness that bothers us, that Satan has tried to trump that to make it something that we should embrace. You know, a little child growing up in his innocence, it'll run around the house with not a dolly on, won't it? Boy or girl. But there comes a point when it begins to notice. There comes a point when it covers herself. Because we instinctively know that's not right. It was fine before the fall, but after the fall, it's not right. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They'd never done that before. They had never done that before. They never felt the need to. And it shows you how foolish sin is. Adam knowing that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Knowing that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. Where can you hide from a holy God? You can't. But sin makes people do things that are wrong, even illogical, that are not rational, that are not right. And so they ran on the head from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? As if he didn't know. Adam, where are you spiritually? Where are you before me today and right now? Something has changed. Something's happened. Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. The first thing Adam said after the fall, the first recorded words of Adam was those, I was afraid. Fear came because of sin. He never was afraid of God before. He had no reason to be. But sin brought that fear. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, <laughs> and here it starts. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's the wife's fault. It's that woman I live with. It all started back there, didn't it? Hasn't changed much in thousands of years. Sure hasn't. Taking personal responsibility for sin is a hard thing for men to do and women to do, mankind to do. We want to blame somebody or something. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Which was true, but... She shouldn't have done it nonetheless. And Paul says she transgressed. Hmm. He blames her. She blames the serpent. In fact, he blames God. The woman you gave me. I woke up one morning, there she was. I didn't ask for her. I didn't, I didn't put a prayer request in for a woman. You, you, you decided I should have a woman. So it's your fault, really. I was fine up to then. 
I, I was okay naming the animals. I had the whole garden to myself. And then you came along and said, this wasn't right. I needed a companionship. Look what you've done. And then they blame God. And you know, man has been doing this ever since. Instead of thanking God for all his blessings to us, we blame him if something goes wrong. Isn't that true? Isn't it a fact that people can go through all of their life, no interest in church, no interest in the Bible, no interest in God, never thank him for anything, don't even say they believe him. As soon as something goes wrong, they shake their fist at God. Why did God allow this to happen? This is old as the Garden of Eden, isn't it? So the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Ah. Between your seed and her seed. Now God has taken this into a higher plane. her seed that would come would be the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and in pain you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now you see, some say, well you see, notice that that was after the fall, he shall rule over you. But now that we are in grace, well we can just forget all about that. Well God gave that before this fall ever happened. But now, but now, since the fall, Adam is imperfect. Eve is imperfect. And they would have to live together as two imperfect human beings working out, living together as husband and wife. And the tensions has remained ever since. Working out our lives together. There's tensions that crop up, isn't there? There's tensions between wives, husband, husband, wives, between parents and children, children and parents, between workers and employers. There's, there's, there's tensions in all human relationships. Why? Because we're all imperfect. All of us are flawed. All of us are prone to do things that are wrong and to sin. And then he said to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Isn't it a fact that ever since then that all mankind has been battling against the elements to produce enough food to feed the hungry of this world. It's a constant battle to do it. And that's why sometimes whenever there's all kinds of diseases and pestilences or floods or volcanic eruptions or cyclones or whatever the case may be, 
we find that the price of food begins to skyrocket again, or the price of cotton begins to go up. Do you ever notice when you go into pre-mart now, it's not as cheap as it used to be? Why is that? Because cotton, because there was great droughts in Pakistan, an Indian place where the cotton was destroyed and everything. So the price has gone up supply and demand. It's a constant, constant battle. It's in your front garden, isn't it? If you're anything like me, it's certainly in your front garden. Those weeds are constantly battling against those jolly weeds, aren't we? We never stop. It always is happening. And so man from that moment on was going to have to battle against the elements just even to feed himself. Far cry from what that beautiful garden was like, that wonderful environment. Now, Adam deliberately chose to eat and to disobey God. And because Adam would be the federal head of all mankind, then all mankind would suffer the consequences and the ramifications of his fall. His sin became our sin. His fall became our fall. His disobedience became our disobedience. Now, we sin enough to condemn ourselves, by the way. But we're already condemned in him. Because that sin nature was passed on to every human being ever since. Now, listen, it's a good job. It's a good thing that his sin has been accounted unto us, that his condemnation has been accounted unto us, that his disobedience has been accounted unto us. It's a good thing. I'll tell you why. Listen to it. In Romans 5.19, For by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. But the other half of that verse says, But by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. <laughs> We inherited the sin nature from Adam because he fell, he disobeyed, and he fell, and we inherited that. But because Jesus obeyed, because he was not disobedient, because he went to the cross and he paid the full price for our sins, then we inherited his righteousness. <laughs> it didn't cost us anything. He gave it to us freely. For by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Hmm. And so here, Adam and Eve, we're almost finished. Adam and Eve have been barred from the Garden of Eden. God put cherubims with flaming swords at the tree of life. So they now could no longer now touch the tree of life. They could before, but they couldn't now because he didn't want them living eternally, perpetually in sin by eating the tree of life. And so he put them out of the garden so they could not do that. And that's the grace of God. 
And what did he do? He made them coats of skins to cover themselves so animals had to die. Innocent lives had to be taken to cover their guilt. And we know that Christ is the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. His innocent life was taken and given for our guilty lives. And so they're taken and they're put out of the garden. And then in the process of time, they have children. Cain comes first. Hmm. Cain comes first. Then Abel comes second. And as they grow up, there comes a conflict. God asks them to bring an offering. Haven't time to go into this this morning, but he was highly displeased with Cain's offering and accepted Abel's offering. Jesus said that Abel was a righteous man and he was a prophet. Said that in the Gospels. He's listed first in the list of men of faith in Hebrews 11. So there was something that was godly and righteous about Abel. And whenever Cain's sacrifice was refused, he got mad and angry at Abel. Now, we don't know the conversations that went on in that garden and that field beyond Eden. We don't know what conversations went on there between these two. But if Abel was a righteous man, he was a man of faith, and he was a prophet, you can be sure he had warned him. You can be sure he had told him. Because he'd be a preacher of righteousness. But Cain disobeyed. God refused it. And Cain got mad with his brother, and he murdered him. He killed him. And when God came and said, Cain, where's your brother? Remember what he said? Am I my brother's keeper? Now he was arrogant and proud and a murderer. You don't have to turn many pages in the Bible before you come to murder and jealousy and anger and pain and hatred. Because once sin came in, it wasn't long till that began to flow in humanity. And God said, your brother's blood is crying to me from the earth. Now, can you imagine, because sometimes we read these accounts in the scriptures and we, we gloss it. Can you imagine Eve, the mother of all living at this point? Where now she's burying her son, Abel. And the one who murdered him, his brother Cain, is standing at the graveside. Can you begin to imagine what must have been through her mind? The pain, the hurt, maybe the guilt. If she hadn't have eaten that fruit. Huh? Can you imagine at that moment what she must have been going through? And then God exiled Cain 
away from that whole area completely. And now she's bereft of her two sons. What's going to happen to Cain? Where will he go? What will he do? What will happen to him? Will I ever see him again? The pain, the anguish, the guilt, the hurt, all of it inside of her, having to deal with it. And sorrow you shall conceive. When she took that fruit, she did not know the ramifications of what was going to happen in her life. Sin seems so attractive, doesn't it? She saw the tree was good for fruit. Fruit was good for food, pleasant to the eye. It's so attractive, but it's a killer. It's a destroyer. So now she's bereft. But God had made her a promise, hadn't he? God had made her a promise that her seed shall bruise his head. The evil one, the deceiver, the tempter, her seed would bruise his head. And so she had another son. In fact, Adam and Eve had lots of sons. Adam lived till he was 930. You can imagine be a big family in all that time. So the Bible doesn't tell us all of them. It doesn't tell us how many even. But she had then another son, Seth. And Seth was godly. Because Seth's son, Enos, from that moment it says that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It's the first time it says that. What does that mean? Maybe it means they got together. Maybe when that was the first meetings were held together as people coming together to worship and to praise the Lord. And you can trace Seth's godly line throughout Scripture. You can trace it. You can trace Cain's line too, but you can trace Seth's godly line. And eventually, eventually, the second Adam comes. The last Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who would bruise his head on Calvary. Who would break his power. Who would break the power of sin. That we would not have, it would not have dominion over us, the Bible says. And so... God honored his word and his promise to her, to Eve, the mother of all living. There's more we could say, but we haven't time. Mothers have a special place in God's economy. And it's not just to keep the population going population couldn't continue if it wasn't for mothers. Sure it couldn't, but it's not just for that. I think mothers especially, if they're godly mothers, there's a connection with their kids that can go into all generations. A mother teaching her child godly things is very, very precious. Now dad should do it too. When Claire was a little girl and we put her to bed, I used to sing the Psalms to her. Jason Dick there, when him and his brother Stephen, because we lived with them for a little while, and they're only little boys, and his dad used to put them to bed. 
and he sang that much to them and taught that much to them, prayed that much with them, they were wide awake. And then his mother had to go and quiet them down. <laughs> but look at them today. They're preachers today. Mothers has got a special job in life. And if you're a godly mother, particularly, you can influence your children. Now they can grow up and they can go away and they have to make up their own mind. You can't save them. But listen, you put something into their life. No matter how far they wander, no matter how long they go, it's going to be there. It's going to be there. And you just keep praying for those who have drifted. You just keep praying that the Spirit of God will draw them back. And then when you're a grandmother, <laughs> you know, Eve became a grandmother, didn't she? Her son Seth and his son Enos, and at that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That must have given her a great delight and pleasure to see her grandson calling upon the name of the Lord. That would be great. We love our grandchildren, don't we? And so you grannies have got a special place for your grandchildren. They love their grannies, don't they? Because their grannies spoil them rotten. <laughs> and why, why wouldn't they? <laughs> it's payback time. <laughs> So you've got a special place in God's economy. Amen? So Eve is the mother of all living. And what a woman she was. And like all mothers, she suffered and had pain and sorrow, but also great joy and delight to see that son Seth and her grandchildren and to know that one day the one that would crush the enemy's head would come and destroy him. Amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.